Uh, if you guys are new, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored, and we are in a series called Refresh. Uh, we kind of started, uh, it's a new year. It's a good time to look at like a refresher course on what our faith is. So core beliefs and practices of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and, and, so, and so that's what we've, we've been about. There's a guy named Brendan Manning. He's a famous uh, Christian writer. Uh, and in one of his books he wrote, he's, he's, he's no longer uh, alive, but, but, um, but in like his 70s he wrote a book. And he talked about a, a, an encounter he had with a spiritual director. And, 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 and he was really, he's a really smart guy. He was a writer. Uh, he was a professor at one point. He had done a lot of things. And, and he was talking to his spiritual director, and he was saying he, he was struggling in different parts of his life. And he was saying, man, I just need to know a couple more things. Like I need a new technique or a new idea. And his spiritual director said, Brendan, you already know more things than you should know. What you needn't is new information. What you truly need is to take what you say you believe in your head and just move it down into your heart. So, so, so the, the core beliefs you have, actually walking in them and believing them. That's what this series is all about. It's a refresher course on the basics of our faith, of our worldview. What, what do we believe as followers of Jesus and how are we call to live as followers of Jesus? And so um, we, we've, we, we talked about uh, week one was pray because you have a new father. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God is our father, so we pray. The second week, Adam Jones talked about, he said, rest because your identity and security are in Jesus. In a frenetic, anxious world, as far as of Jesus, we can live at peace because we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. And our security is found in him. We know how it all ends. So minister because you're gifted. Grow because you're in the spirit. Reconciled. We should be some of the most empathetic, great at conflict people in this entire world because we have a God who's reconciled with us, even though we didn't deserve it. Last week, um, Royce talked about giving because you've received. And so this week, uh, it's a little spicy. It's, it's fight because you're at war. Fight because you're at war. Um, in Jesus' uh, famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he's teaching his disciples to pray. And it's interesting. He says, it, 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 he goes, man, you know, pray this. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a daily prayer. And he says, and then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's a pretty weird thing to pray every day. Like, dude, we're, we're, we're referencing demons daily in our prayer. Jesus. It's kind of hyper-spiritual. It's kind of intense. It's a little weird. It's 2020. What are we doing? But, but, but he goes, man, uh, that, that daily there is something or someone who wants to tempt you, wants to call you into something, wants to call you away from uh, Jesus. And so um, spiritual warfare for me is it's a weird topic. It's something that even going to Bible college we didn't talk a lot about. And then at pastors' conferences, they don't talk a lot about. It's kind of an awkward thing. It's, it's kind of, right? Anyone that's really into it, it's kind of weird. But then a lot of us act like we, we, we don't really believe in it at all. And I, um, I didn't really care about this topic a ton. I kind of thought it was like an extracurricular thing for charismatic churches. Like, that's kind of their thing. And then I remember I met this, this, this gal, and I'll, I'll nickname her Nancy. Uh, if there's a Nancy in the house, it's not her. And I, I, don't, I don't think I know a Nancy that, that's under the age of 50. So I'm pretty, pretty sure this is a safe one. Na- all the Nancys and Barb's out there. Um, it's a place for you. Um, but I was, I was working at a church in L.A., and I was a college pastor. And there's this um, gal who came into our um, college ministry, and she became a follower of Jesus. Uh, she was a secular, uh, secular Jew, so she had no background with Christianity. She didn't believe in demons. She didn't believe in any of that stuff. And, um, and she, she had started to explore the claims of Jesus, and she would come in. And I never forget, she would come into our gathering, 
and she really liked the people. People make it, made her feel really welcomed. And then it was like I would preach my sermon, and whenever I got to the cross, which was every week, she would pop up and she would leave, like leave, like run out of the gathering. And it was always kind of like, you know, it was 120, 130 people. Like it was like, oh, it's kind of weird. Like she must, she must like work after this every week, and like she's just running to, to her job, and it's cool she even comes. Like, um, and then you realize, oh, she's outside. I started to realize over time, like she's she's in the parking lot. Like she doesn't actually leave, you know. And I was like, man, that's kind of kind of weird. And then she would say, man, whenever you talk about Jesus, I just get scared. And I was like, man, that's kind of you know, that's kind of unique. We got into her story. So definitely like traumatic church background. She's like, I didn't grow up in church. I don't really have a context for Jesus, you know, all that stuff. And and uh, I was telling a mentor of mine about it, and, and a guy, uh, an older leader at the church, and, and he said, man, it could be like a spiritual thing. And I was like, oh, I mean, everything's spiritual. He's like, no, no, like, it could be like, like, spiritual, spiritual. Like, it could be like a demonic thing. And I was like, ah, man, I don't know about that, dude. That's pretty, pretty out there. And I remember we had a Good Friday gathering, and I remember, um, you know, it was a mega church retractional. There's always like a, some huge illustration that involves a prop, and and, uh, and so we did this cool thing. We, we had crosses at the front of the, uh, kind of all throughout the room, about 2,000 people in the room. And, and they gave everyone a, a rock when they walked in. It was a black rock. And there was this moment where you could walk up to the cross and you put your black rock down and you, put, you pick your white rock up and then you go sit down. There's this moment to realize, man, Jesus cleansed you through his work on the, on the cross on Good Friday. You know, it's a pretty special moment. I remember for some reason I was sitting up a little higher and I saw uh, Nancy in line, and, and I saw her, and I saw her, and again, it's mega, they're waiting for a while, it's like waiting for a communion at like a, at like a traffic jam, it's like 50 people, I'm not exaggerating, about five seconds each, have a little moment, and I'm watching her, and she stays in line the entire time, she gets to the cross, she keeps her black rock, she sits down, and I was like, man, that's, that was interesting, like that, you know, and I asked her about it, and she's like, I was just so afraid, like I got really scared of the white rock thing, and and so anyways, so she scouts my ministry, and so anyways, I talked to this guy again, leader, you know, one of my bosses, and he said, hey, it might be cool just to sit down with her and talk, and so she sits down, and, um, and we start praying, or we, he starts talking to her, and I'm honestly, like, kind of freaked out about this. I didn't plan on sharing the story, by the way, either, so I feel like it's a little scattered, but I'm going to tighten it up here in one minute. Um, I remember we sit down, and I'm like, man, she's like, she's a pretty cool girl. She's getting her MFT. She's getting licensed. She's really normal, uh, secular background. She's not hyper-charismatic. Like, he's like, hey, let's just talk to her about it. And I'm like, man, just don't make it weird, bro. Like, I don't want to get weirded out. I don't want to be uncomfortable. And he's talking to her. And he's asking her questions, doing a little diagnostic type thing. And then out of nowhere, he just says, by the authority given to me by Jesus Christ, what is your name? And she looks up, and it's not her. That's the best way to describe it. And there's this really awkward interaction and uh, a demon kind of manifests, or manif a demon manifests, guys. I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to talk about it. It just feels weird for some reason in our culture. You think I'm making this up. And then it, they kind of go back and forth. She, I don't know what happens. Her like eyes go back to normal. She's not glazed over. I'm like, and I'm freaked out. I'm like, hey, are you okay? Are you uncomfortable? We don't have to do this. Like, she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh my gosh. And I'll get into how... <laughs> I'll get into how that story ended in a second, but man, it was a wild, wild night that, that, that kind of keyed me into the reality that people are walking with a lot of pain, a lot of fear, um, and it's not always physical or mental necessarily. Like there's a spiritual component to some of these um, things. And so, um, again, that's, that's a crazy encounter with spiritual warfare, but it's not always that crazy or that intense. Uh, again, we, we all experience spiritual warfare, whether we're aware of it or not. 
That's obviously a dramatic version, but, but day in and day out, we have these moments. Have you ever tried to, to pray, to, to, to read the scriptures consistently, to forgive someone, to share the gospel, to try to develop patience or self-control? Have you noticed how much resistance there seems to be to those things? And, and if you go, ah, I don't know how much resistance there actually is. Well, well, let me put it this way. Do you ever feel that same level of resistance when you're picking a coffee drink or a new beer to try or when you're in the middle of a Netflix binge or you're scrolling Instagram? You're like, man, this is hard. I got to pray through this. Lord, give me perseverance to get through this feed. No, right? Spiritual warfare affects all of us. All of us experience temptation. All of us struggle to do the right thing. Some of you have experienced physical manifestations of things. Some of you have felt things. Some of you are constantly living in fear and you don't know why. Some of you, no matter how many times you hear the truth of the gospel, you can never stop feeling ashamed. So there's a wide range of spiritual attack, but we all experience it to some degree. This is a battle. The scriptures teach that we're all involved in. And I don't want you to think this is a random message. This is an important message. Again, don't tune me out and think this is for that charismaniac people down the street, Pentecostal church, they're into this. No, we're in. It's just are we aware, according to the scriptures. And in the ministry of Jesus, we see over and over and over again, he encounters people who are suffering spiritual oppression. They're experiencing bondage. And Jesus came to forgive you of your sin, but he also came to set you free, is what the Bible says. And so I have three points about this today. I know this is a, you know, freaky topic, uh, but, but I really do think it's an important one. I have three points. Uh, who are we fighting? Who fights alongside us? And how do we fight? Who are we fighting? Who fights alongside us? And how do we fight? So my first point is this, who are we fighting? And to, to look at this idea, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6, the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be starting in verse 10. Paul writes this, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Again, armor of God. Think, and when this was written, it was written while the Roman Empire was strong and mighty. Think through ancient Roman kind of armor. Uh, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Okay, so Paul is making clear that dark spiritual forces are real. Um, this is mocked in our culture, uh, but the effects of dark spiritual forces are actively, like, like they're clearly seen. The scriptures teach that Satan and demons are real. Okay, um, who is Satan? Satan means sworn enemy. Devil means slanderer. Uh, Christian orthodoxy for 2,000 years has taught that Satan is a very strong angel created by God to glorify God who rebelled against God and brought a third of the angels with him. And now these dark angels are committed to the destruction of God's purposes in the world. They're a resistance movement to God's good kingdom. Um, and, that, and, and especially people he loves, you and I. They come after us, which is what we see in this passage. Now, again, controversial topic, 59%, 59% of self-professed Christians don't believe in a personal Satan or demons. Um, here's the thing, though. The Bible never teaches that Satan is a symbol of evil. It does teach that there is a personhood to him. And I, I think the reason we like to think that Satan and demons aren't real <clears throat> is if there is evil that is real and supernatural, then we can't fix it in and of ourselves. If it's natural, we can fix it. It takes the fear out. 
Oh, it's just get this guy to a, to a doctor, get this gal to uh, someone who can help. I think we like to think that the guys who had demons that Jesus encountered in the gospel weren't demonized. They just had rough childhoods. Um, they needed maybe our modern day doctors and medicines could have fixed them. Jesus didn't understand. And it's easy to practice what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery and think these people were primitive. They didn't understand the complexity of humanity like we do. But one important note, the gospel writers distinguish between those who are physiologically sick, those who are psychologically sick, and those who are demonically afflicted. This actually wasn't a superstitious culture that assumed everything should be attributed to demons, as a lot of people think. The Bible doesn't attribute every problem to demons. Um, however, it doesn't attribute every problem to human dysfunction or sinfulness like we do. So I think there are three really good reasons to believe in Satan as a follower of Jesus. The first one is Jesus himself references a person on multiple occasions. If we claim to be a follower of Jesus, then we want to follow his words, his teachings, his worldview. The other thing is we see, uh, second thing is we see his effects even if we don't see him. And again, applied to other parts of our lives or our worldviews, this doesn't freak us out as much as we, we, we think. Um, up until uh, very recently, up until uh, Louis, Louis Pasteur uh, came around and started you know, cleaning milk up, which no one wants to drink anymore anyways, people believed in something we now called spontaneous generation. That is that living organisms could just pop up out of nowhere, and so a disease would pop up and doctors would assume it was genetic. Uh, they had too much blood in their bobby, body, uh, maybe even the hand of God. And Louis Pasteur demonstrated that spontaneous generation in the natural world was impossible, that all life came from a, another life, which meant that when someone contracted a, a disease that didn't just happen out of thin air, it had to be caused by little tiny organisms, you know, germs, microbes that we can't see with our eyes. Uh, later, uh, we developed powerful enough microscopes. We figured out that little micro microbes are everywhere. Word on the street is you're breathing, you're breathing in thousands of them right now as you sit there. How disgusting. I'm a germaphobe. My strange addiction's Purell. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you guys. It's been said at any given moment, there's 20 million of them living on your skin, crawling, eating, hooking up, breeding. <laughs> Here's what I want you to catch, though, is the medical community for about 150 years didn't buy the microbe theory at first because they couldn't see any of them. They're like, you're trying to tell us that these life-threatening sicknesses that we can observe with our eyes are caused by things that we cannot observe with our eyes. Uh, again, in fact, about 15 years before Louis Pasteur came on the scene, there was a man named Ignaz Semmelweis who is known as the savior of mothers. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. In the ancient world, it was a, it was a very dangerous thing to give birth to a child. Um, it, uh, mortality rates were off the charts. Uh, I think like one in three women died uh, giving birth to a child at one point. And, um, and this guy, Ignaz Semmelweis, he was, his big, the reason why he changed the game is he came around and said, guys, we should wash our hands as doctors. I'm not making this up. So dude's dealing with someone with a disease. He's touching it. He's dealing with a dead corpse. And he's like, hey, let's, let's deliver a baby with these hands. And in his clinics, the, mort the mortality rate went down to about 1% for these moms. So it was, it was a, a big shift. Uh, no one really listened to him, though, uh, for a long time. And again, they had a hard time believing that things that they could not see 
could cause things that they could see. And Paul ends the book of Ephesians by reminding the Ephesians that on a totally different plane, there is an unseen world that just as radically affects the world that they live in, even if they can't see it. And he tells them that, that things like war and adultery and divorce and child abuse and sexual assault and genocide, its effects are everywhere. We know that humans getting smarter has not made us better. That there is still something going on in our worlds. And so Jesus himself believed in a personal Satan. I think we do see his effects in the world around us. And the last thing is to not believe in him puts us in great danger as followers of Jesus. In 1 Peter um, 5.8, the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Um, it's important that we believe in a real uh, personal devil because he's like a lion. He's like a wild, dangerous animal. Uh, Jackie and I, uh, in an unfortunate time in our life, we lived in a place called Simi Valley. Uh, it's a very boring suburb north of Los Angeles. I worked at a church. I went to a Bible college there. Um, and the boring suburb was shaken up a little over 10 years ago, not because we moved in. It wasn't a there goes the neighborhood situation, but because for over two weeks, a Siberian tiger was roaming the hills of Simi Valley, California, this sleepy community. A tiger named Fluffy had escaped from a home where it was being kept illegally. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this. There are more tigers illegally privately owned in America than there are in the wild in India. It's ridiculous. Um, the couple who housed the tiger were worried about getting in trouble. So you know what they did? They never reported that a tiger escaped. I didn't think it was funny, but Afghan <laughs> loves a dangerous vibe. Tiger, tiger doing its thing, little children walking around. Um, on top of that, not only did he not report it, he got rid of as many tiger tracks as possible to keep animal control from finding the tiger. He faced 60 years in jail. I don't know whatever ended up happening in the trial. But the reason why he's in so much trouble is he created a scenario where he put people in a lot of danger. A tiger is a dangerous animal, right? It's dangerous enough as it is. How much more dangerous is it when you aren't aware of its presence? Imagine there's a lion running around Jefferson Elementary right now. Okay? And your kids are safe. Okay, put, put them aside for a second. Okay? <laughs> Tiger's running around. And we're like, hey, we got to stay inside, right? There's a lion out there. And, and uh, you go, ah, I don't think so. I don't believe it. And there's actually a lion out there. You're like, no, man, there's not a chance. This is ridiculous. We're in North Park. There's no lions. Um, how much more in danger are you walking out there than the cat who's scared? It's not true, but he's scared. He's in here, right? Um, that, that line would have an insane advantage if you didn't believe in it. You'd make no attempt to protect yourself, you'd be vulnerable, um, again, to your own peril. To deny dark spiritual forces is to put you in danger as a follower of Jesus, if we have the worldview of the scriptures. That being said, there are things attributed to demonic forces over the years that probably aren't demonic. There was one time in human history when both sides of a political opposition would go, demons are inspiring the other side. We're kind of back there again, actually. Um, uh, <laughs> I was reading a book one time and there was a guy who talked about a time where he was asked to preach at a church and he got a flat tire on the way to that church. And when he got to the church, uh, a guy who attended that church said, oh man, flat tire must have been spiritual warfare. To which he thought, he didn't say this because be rude. He thought to himself, why would the devil do, mess up the only thing on my car I can fix? 
The only thing I can actually fix and get here on time. Like, dude, the devil should hit my alternator, right? As a follower of Jesus, C.S. Lewis said that there are two equal and opposite errors we can make when it comes to the demonic. We can obsess over dark spiritual forces, or we can ignore dark spiritual forces. You don't want to do either of those. So how do we engage? Um, the best analogy I've ever heard is, is opposition in a sporting event. Um, Cliven, uh, Calvin played some basketball games yesterday. Um, and uh, and there's, an, there's like being aware of yourself, and then there's being aware of the, your team, and then there's being aware of the opposing uh, team. Um, uh, you have to be aware of your opponent, but you can't just stare at them, right? right? So um, you will struggle to make the right pass if you're staring at your opponent's chest, right? You might be good with no-look passes. You're not that good. You're going to struggle to shoot if you're just staring at their jersey. Let it rain. Long came Polly, right? You're like, like maybe some will go in, but like way less than if you were actually looking, okay? On the flip side, you will also struggle. Your passes are going to get stolen nonstop if you're not aware of the, the opposition, right? Uh, if, you, if you try to pass all the time with our kids when they're inbounding the ball, I always remind them, be aware of the other kids that are right outside ready to steal the ball who are on the other team. Uh, so your shots are also going to struggle to go in. You, you'll be getting blocked nonstop if you never know where uh, those guys are. So, so again, we want to have an awareness of the opposing team, but we don't want to just stare at them. Does that make sense? So we're aware, but we're not obsessed. The second thing we see in this text is, so, so who, who are we fighting? There you go. Um, the second one is who fights alongside us? Who fights alongside us? And the answer is Jesus. Satan has actually already been defeated by Jesus through his death on the cross. Um, and, and even before he died on the cross, in the Gospels, you need to know that, that spiritual warfare, what, like, it, it looked very different for Jesus. It wasn't like a UFC fight. Man, Beelzebub, Jesus, what's going to happen? He walks through, and they're screaming at Jesus, have mercy on us. Demons turn to like little kids. They're terrified. Please don't hurt us. Full of the Holy Spirit, he commands them to come out. He, there's an authority in them. Jesus and Satan are not equals. That's important. Um, uh, in, in like the year 1900, there was a missionary to India, a uh, Methodist guy, and he, uh, he wrote this story about a 20-foot python that entered his house in the jungle, which is a bad morning, right? Like that's a rough breakfast situation, making some toast, like 20-foot python, surrounding the kitchen table, whatever. And, and, and he, uh, he grabbed a gun, and sorry for the animal lovers, he shot the snake in the head, okay? Just sad stuff. Um, that 20-foot python, <laughs> it's a deadly snake, uh, for, for quite a while flailed around. So even though it was like dead, it's kind of like the chicken head cut off thing, it flailed around breaking things. Like plates fell over, Nana's fine china, done. Because uh, of this snake. And what you need to know is that on the cross, in a similar way, the enemy has been conquered. He can make a little bit of a mess, but we have authority. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say this. Did I give that to you guys or no? Okay, sorry. It says, And when you were dead in trespasses and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. When you wanted nothing to do with God, when you were rebelling against God, living your own life, doing your own thing, 
Verse 14, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. The debt we had before God, God himself paid for us through Jesus. Justice has been served, and grace can be received. But something else happens. Not only were our sins forgiven on the cross, but verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. On the cross, Satan was disarmed. The struggle that began in Genesis 3, um, and for all intents and purposes, um, it was the beginning of the end. I know Nicole preached a couple couple months ago about D-Day, that there was this day where the Allied forces in World War II, uh, they, they won that battle, and for all intents and purposes, the war was over. It still went on for a little while, but there was no chance that they could win. There's no chance that dark spiritual forces um, can win. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord, be, uh, be, be strengthened um, by who he is, uh, walk in the victory that's already happened. Don't try to create a victory yourself. Also, understand that the struggle isn't against flesh and blood. This is so important for us to hear. Humans are not your enemy. The struggle isn't against Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or whatever political person that gets under your skin personally. It's not against your ex-boyfriend or your ex-girlfriend or the dysfunctional members of your family of origin or against the other members of this church, or against your boss, or gasp, your spouse. They are not your enemy. Your primary conflict is against the enemy of your soul. And he loves when we lose sight of him and start attacking one another. We do all the work for him. The enemy is terrified of church unity. You just need to know that. Which leads to my last point, how do we fight? What are our weapons? What are our strategies? Because Jesus, because Jesus conquered Satan on the cross, um, the enemy's only power over you, this is so key, is the power you give him when you believe lies. Okay? So if the truth is not on your side and you don't actually have power, your only power is rooted in lies. An analogy I've used a lot over the years that's been helpful to me, it makes me laugh and it encourages me, is imagine you're walking down the street with a... a a big gun. I don't have guns. I'm not a gun guy, but you have a big gun on you, okay? And you're walking down the street, and a guy rolls up on you, and you know how to use it. Let's just say you're trained in this scenario, okay? Guy rolls up on you with a nail file. Says, give me your wallet. Like, man, that thing could cut me. All right, man, here's my wallet, right? All you gotta do is go, hey, man, I've got a gun. I think that nail file, like, was precious, end this interaction. I don't want to be mean. Should probably go. I don't want to kill anyone today, right? End it, okay? But if he can go, hey, man, no, 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 that's not a gun. Listen, 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 listen. You don't have a gun. You've got no gun. You've got no authority. I can kill you with this nail file, right? Okay, all right. That would be absurd, right? But, But that's where we're at spiritually. The only power the enemy has over us is telling us we have no power. We have no power over our life or the choices we make. There's no, we don't know who we are or what we're called to or what really matters, and so uh, Ephesians 6, 12 uh, through 16 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, 
against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so the fiery darts are the lies, and I, and I want you to see this. Um, if lies are the enemy's weapon, then truth is our weapon. In particular, the truth of the gospel. When you break down all the different pieces of armor Paul gives you, man, how do I put on righteousness? Uh, how do I put on salvation? Uh, how do I put on truth? All that stuff. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus. It's your identity in Christ. So there are two ways the enemy can attack us, the only ways he's really able to. And again, deception is the big one. Uh, he's been a liar from the beginning, the Bible says. And there are two, there are a couple big types of lies, okay? The first one is this. It's a lie to you about God. A lie to you about God. When you hear things like, he doesn't love you. Or what Adam and Eve heard, he doesn't want you to be happy. He's a hater. You want to have fun, he's a killjoy. He's not looking out for your best interests. When he puts prohibitions on things, it can never be because he loves you and he's looking out for you. It can only be because he wants you to, to not have joy. He'll lie to you about what you need. He'll tempt you. You'll only be happy if you have fill in the blank. Power, money, approval, whatever it is, a spouse. And he'll compromise to get it your way. He'll try to control things. And you'll become a person you don't want to become trying to get what you think you have to have that you don't actually have to have. And the other big lie he'll tell you is about your identity. You're dirty, you're guilty, you're disgusting, you'll never amount to anything. And, and I think this is, a, this is like a major league attack for him because it's actually the attack that he used with Jesus in the desert when he tempted Jesus. Just think about this. Satan's like, I've got, I've got my fight with Jesus. It's going down. This is my moment. And, 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 and he goes after his identity. Uh, J.D. Greer says this. This is a long quote, but I think it's so, so, so helpful. He says, one of Satan's most effective weapons, I believe, is making us forget the identity the Father has declared over us in Christ and basing our sense of approval on how well we've done. You could actually see that played out in the life of Jesus. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he tried to redirect Jesus' attention from the Father's declaration on to other sources of validation. He said things like, since you are the Son of God, dot, dot, dot. Embedded in that question is a doubt the enemy was implying, well, since you are the son of God, Messiah boy, shouldn't you, be, shouldn't you be able to make things different? Why would the son of God be out here in the desert all alone? Shouldn't you be able to make bread from the stones or have the angels catch you when you fall? What was significant about that was the father had just declared over Jesus in the previous chapter, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Rather than feasting on the Father's declaration, the enemy wanted him to look to other forms of validation for his divine sonship. Jesus told the enemy that he did not need bread or protection to prove he was the Father's son. The Father's declaration was sufficient. If there were ever a time for Satan to bring out his A-game, this would have been it. Don't you think that it's significant that Satan began his A-game 
by trying to get Jesus to take his eyes off of the identity the Father had declared over him and to seek validation in other ways. Satan's approach to us is the same. Satan's most effective weapon is for us to take our eyes off of what God has declared over us in Jesus. Did you catch that? Satan's primary temptation strategy is to try and make us forget what God has said about us and to evaluate our standing before God by some other criteria. A lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, we think of it in terms of strange paranormal phenomena. People levitating six feet above their beds, their eyes rolling in the back of their heads, singing black mass heavy metal music. Does Satan do stuff like that? I wouldn't put it beneath them. I'm not sure about the heavy metal. But I'm pretty confident that that's not his main strategy. He attacks our identity in the gospel. Satan's one direct shot at Jesus didn't include levitation or Ouija boards, nor did he show Jesus pornographic pictures out in the wilderness. He redirected Jesus' mind away from God's declaration over him. And his questions, of course, had a ring of truth in them. Why would God leave his son alone in the desert? Satan's questions always have a ring of truth in them. Our enemy, for example, will correctly point will correctly point out our failures. Sometimes he helps us see how badly we've been doing at being a Christian by showing us someone who is much better than we are. Other times he puffs us up with pride. At least you don't struggle with jealousy like they do. Either strategy is effective because in either case, we take our focus off of Jesus's gift righteousness and put it into ourselves. And comparison with others leads to two of Satan's favorite sins, pride and despair. He wants you to either stand proud if you're proud, you're in danger. You can't receive God's grace if you don't think you need it. And you can't receive help from other people because you don't think you need it. Or despair, I'm too far gone. God, there's no way you could love me. There's no way these people actually love me. They don't know the real me. So he attacks our identity. So he lies to us about God. He lies to us about ourselves. And he also lies to us about other people. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. But it's the worst and the best at the same time. You have like a conflict with someone. You can't really put your finger on it. It's gotten weird. It's gotten bad. And then you finally go, you know, man, we just got to talk. You pray through it. You feel like God's prompting you. And you have a moment of reconciliation. And you realize you got played. Not by the other person, but by your own security mixed with the enemies, like the fire of your own security with the gasoline of the enemy. And you're like, I don't really know why we're beefing. It's like, it doesn't really make sense. And you go, oh, man. You can waste weeks, months, years living in this space. Uh, I've seen people who, who can't trust leaders. They have big beefs with pastors or skilled counselors, and it puts them in a spot where it feels impossible to help them. It's like the more able the person is to help them, the more they push them away. Cutting themselves off from the truth being spoken in love to them. And again, it makes sense because if someone was tormenting you or abusing you, they often lie to keep their victim from getting help. The enemy is ruthless. James 4, 7 says this. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The enemy wants, he lies to us. He wants us to feel guilty and afraid. Guilty because if we're guilty, we won't draw near to God. And afraid because if we're afraid, we won't resist him. So again, how do we fight? If lies are Satan's biggest weapon and the truth of the gospels the greatest weapon. How do we use the truth of the gospel to fight? And the, and the first answer is in community. In community. 
Um, spiritual warfare is waged in community. It's never waged all by ourselves. And I, um, I, I never use video clips and I never, I've told like too many animal stories today, but I, I saw this clip a couple years ago and it just, it had, it was just so helpful to me. I've like painted a picture of what life and community can be and how, how, how spiritual warfare can look. Okay. Okay. Now, obviously it's an animal. It's, it's a clip of animals. Um, but what you see <laughs> What you see in that video absolutely depicts spiritual life. So often when people are most in danger, they're isolated and they're by themselves. And none of us can handle that. I don't care who you think you are, right? We need solitude, but we don't need isolation. We need time alone with our thoughts, time with God, time to, 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 to be present, time to slow down. But isolation is a whole other thing where we pull ourselves away from everyone. And the people that God wants to use to speak into our lives, we don't have. And we're in the and the enemy wants he wants to get you into the darkness by yourself where he can devour you. Abusers, predators, they always do that. The enemy is the ultimate abuser, the ultimate predator. Get you by yourself and feast on you when you're afraid and you're guilty and you're ashamed. And I had two other things I want to talk about, but I actually don't want to do that. I want to um I want to call the worship team up. And and today what I really want to do is just create an awareness. Um, one of the keys to staying alive in war is situational awareness. Are you aware of what's going on around you? Do you hear the noises? Do you see the sights? Are you paying attention to what's going on? And I want to say to you, there is an enemy that wants to destroy you. I'm not going to end there. That'd be pretty sad. There is also a king who has absolutely come, a warrior king who's come to set your heart free. And his name is Jesus. And he gives us a delegated authority, the scriptures say, that everything that's under his feet has been put under my feet. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. I have access to spiritual resources that I wouldn't if he wasn't my brother, if his father hadn't adopted me into his family, if his Holy Spirit wasn't filling me. And so we have a chance to both say, hey, I'm not going to give the enemy space in my life to operate. I'm going to preach the gospel to myself. When I feel dirty, I'm going to rob myself. Actually, you're clean. And when I can't do that, and I'm out with the hyenas, I need to go to tell someone, I'm believing this, I'm thinking this. Does this make sense to you? I'm tempted to do this thing. Will you help me? I don't want, to, I don't want us to be paranoid, but it is dangerous out there. I don't mean the world. It's dangerous in here by ourselves. And the enemy loves to, to, to get us vulnerable, to pick us apart. But would you be honest with God? Is, is there, and the other thing I was going to say is, um, we need to do this as a community, but we also need to do it repentantly. God gives so much grace to the humble. There's so much safety in his presence to be humble. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, um, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the, the, the devil a foothold. A foothold was the, the center of an ancient fortress. If you're at war, it would be the safest place. If the walls were breached, you can go into that and go to the top, and they could, they could lock it up. It says we give him space to work in our life, essentially. But because we're followers of Jesus, we have an authority. Imagine you're in an old fortress, and you put the drawbridge down. You go, come on in, guys. Whoever wants to come in and destroy us, feel free. That that's what we do when we do live in unrepentant sin. We give the, the enemy an opportunity to just live in our life. To, we give him opportunity. But at the same time, as followers of Jesus, we have the authority to say, you must leave this castle immediately. You must leave my life immediately. Through repentance, through forgiveness, which is hard to do. We're going to talk about it next week as a whole sermon. 
Bitterness takes you down a road you don't want to go. Sin takes you down a road you don't want to go. It starts out fun. It does not end fun. But on the flip side, our warrior king can lead us to a space of repentance and healing and freedom. And so if you're living in a space where you're aware of, of sp the spiritual bondage in your life, or you just feel so far from God, we'd love to pray for you today. We'd love to walk you through that. We'd love to talk about that. This is a part of the ministry of Jesus. It's not just getting people to go to heaven. It's that you live free lives now. So would you guys stand with me? We're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate our warrior king who laid down his life for us. And if you want prayer for literally anything, um, Royce and Allison are up here. Jackie's up here. I'm up here. Paul and Nicole are up here. Bianca's right there. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. Hillary's right there. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, and the rest of us will sing and worship. I'm going to pray over us right now.